You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, we hope you had a good meal before you hit play on this podcast because we're going to be talking about food, a lot about food, but namely the opportunities and risks on the investing table amid a swiftly changing global food supply chain. Our guest is an executive at a major asset management firm who recently helped write an in-depth report on this exact subject. But, Feltana, before we bring him in, I have to ask, the big buzz, I think, on this topic lately, cultivated meat. Cultivated lab, meat. Lab oh, lab-grown meat. You're not a meat eater, correct? No, I'm not. And just the idea. Ugh. Really? But It but excites I you? Like, well, I would feel like if I were you, it would, ex- it would excite Has me. Has anybody had lab-grown meat? Someone somewhere has, yeah. Like one person in the world. I think so. Maybe our guest knows the real answer. Maybe he has had it. We'll see. (laughs) I want to bring him in. It's Timer Hyatt. He's the chief operating officer for PGM. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Have you had lab-grown meat? I have not had lab-grown meat, but very recently the FDA just announced that uh, two companies are allowed to start... uh, producing lab-grown meat in the U.S. and it's safe. Until then, the only place you could get lab-grown meat was Singapore, where they introduced chicken nuggets a couple of years ago. So, Mike, you may be able to have your wish sooner (laughs) than you think. But, Timer, from reading your report, I don't get the sense that you and your team are very bullish on the concept of of cultivated meat. Talk to us a little bit about where you see that space going. He said it's more sizzle than steak. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> that was a podcast-worthy pun. Yeah, there, there are a whole variety. I mean, there are lots of areas we're excited about investing in, but but they're definitely a bit like uh, Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies in the crypto space. There are definitely some bubbles in the food chain as, as well. And, and cultivated meat is, is maybe not a bubble, I think our main issue as an investor is it's too early to invest. There are literally hundreds of companies around the world that are trying to do different kinds of cultivated meat. And it's pretty much impossible at this stage to know which one's going to win and which one's going to lose. So we would say even as a venture capitalist, it's too early to go in. There will be some winners over time. They're the ones who are going to solve the scale problem. It is just so expensive to get that chicken nugget or that beef steak cultivated at this point. 
that that it's just not feasible for it to become a mainstream food item around the world. It actually costs some multiple of the real thing at this point, right? Way more. And the only place where we see progress at this point is actually not in that actual finished good where you will want those char marks on your steak and you'll want all that flavor and you won't get that in cultivated meat yet. But they are taking things like egg whites, which go into cakes and pastries or whey, which is part of how they make yogurt in, in Israel and other places. And that's where cultivated versions of those products could be could get cheaper quicker. So that's where we're keeping an eye on first. That's where the first investment opportunities will arise. But it's too early. It's not a bad opportunity. You just don't want to be 10 years too early to something. I'm already hungry, Vildana. I've had the eggless mayonnaise or whatever. Yeah. It's pretty good. Is it? Yeah. yeah. I know that's slightly different, but, you know, yeah. I can see trends evolving from all of the, you know, different branches. There's a lot of changes in how consumers are behaving around the world. And that's actually one of the big drivers of investment opportunities, including yeah. things that are more humane and, and things that are more healthy. So eggless mayo would definitely fit that category well. Before we talk about all of this and the investment implications, I actually want to ask you what made you look into food as a topic, especially an investment topic. I mean, beyond the fact that I'm a big foodie, the, the reasons we as, as PGM went into this were, were a couple. We think, first of all, that food is uh, not just 10% of GDP, but 40% of the labor force. So a lot of people work in this industry. And we're defining food as from farm to fork and everything in between, processing, packaging, preparing the seeds all the way to kind of end, end retail. So it's a big part of the labor force, and there's been a lot of focus on, on, on labor and inflation and so on. So that was one driver. But, but the second one to really write this report and to think about its investment implications was that we think food is where the energy sector and this whole talk about energy transition was about 10 years ago. We're like 10 years behind in the thinking, and it's going to catch up because the current food system is simply not fit for purpose. It is not going to work for our planet. It's not going to work for our consumption needs for a variety of reasons that we can get into. And that debate on how do we transition this, even if it takes 20, 30 years, to the new food system of the future has happened. There are carbon transition funds. There's renewable energy. There are opportunities. There's the Inflation Reduction Act and lots of money going there. It hasn't happened to food yet, but we think it's about to. And that's why we thought it was an interesting time to write about it. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating topic. And I wonder if that making that transition... It's one thing to get people to stop driving gasoline cars. If you can give them a, an electric car, that's just as fast, just as reliable. But food, I feel like, will be a little bit trickier. And one portion of this report that really caught my interest was you talk about when a society becomes more affluent, when per capita income goes up, people's diets change. I, and I, I found that fascinating. Can you talk to us a little bit about what changes in a diet as a society sort of gains more income? Yeah, historically, the main reason we needed more food for this planet was that there were just more people on it. Population grows, everybody needs calories, more food has to be created. Yeah. But, a, but an important shift is happening, and one you hit, Mike, which is now we have as perhaps an increasing influence is the fact that particularly Asia is developing a new emerging middle class and they have the same wants and needs and desires as people in developed markets do. And that means, A, not just more calories, but more protein and more calories that are increasingly converging with what we call the Western diet. So there's more, more meat in it. There's more chicken in it. There's, there's more, more uh, pork in that diet. 
And those are calories that need to be exported. You can't just all get them in Vietnam or in Thailand or in China. There's much more export supply chains, ironically, where everybody's trying to simplify them after COVID are going to get more complicated because people want the same food in more and more countries of the world rather than just the local food. And B, that food itself is, has a bigger climate footprint because of all the methane and greenhouse gas emissions that come from the farming system. And now more people want livestock, which is the key creator of, of greenhouse gases. And C, it, it means much more pressures on the governments in these countries to provide the resources, to provide the infrastructure so that people can get these new forms of Western diets that are, frankly, maybe a little less healthy for them as well, definitely more costly, require much more importing of things from around the world than you did before. So it's a pretty radical change. And, and finally, it does mean the food system doesn't just need to cope with more population. It needs to provide many more calories even to each person on the planet. So you have all of these different findings. One of them is that climate change is causing a 12% decline in crop yields. So this is just, I make this point to show that there's really a lot of geopolitical implications for this as well, right? Yeah, so the climate interlinkage is actually quite interesting and complex because it goes both ways. First of all, the fact that climate is changing is changing our food supply chains. You know, you have less fish in the ocean when oceans are warming up. You have new kinds of fungi, even if we haven't seen the, the, the HBO t TV series. I'm watching uh, it right now. It's so scary. The new kinds of fungi, the new kinds of insects and, and that require new pesticides because of uh, a warming climate change. And with heat, it's harder for labor to work in conditions in many parts of the world where you do have manual labor, 80% of Indian farms, for example. And crop yields have declined. So first of all, you've got this effect from a changing climate, a more extreme climate, reduces crop yields, creates more variability, adds new threats and risks. And then second, you've got the fact that the food system as we have it today itself changes the climate. Something like 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, which cause global heating, come from the food system. 70% of freshwater consumption is not all of us drinking waters to, you know, have a two to six liters a day, but it is because the food system needs it to grow crops and, and so on and so forth. So you've got a very complicated interrelationship. And frankly, it's one that's unsustainable and needs some new ways to thinking about food to create a food system that can meet our needs for the future. Yeah. So talk to us about some of the new ways. What's on the horizon that will alleviate some of these issues that you're talking about? So one that comes to mind is how agriculture's changed, what we call ag tech. And, and there's precision agriculture, which is about how can you really take sensors and data from satellites and information on what's happening in the roots of crops and, and make that available to farmers around the world so that they can grow crops more quickly, more productively at a higher level. Frankly, there hasn't really been a revolution outside of the U.S. and Latin America. So in the big grain baskets of uh, Ukraine and Asia and Africa since the green revolution of the 1960s. That was when a lot of new seeds were introduced. As long as you had a lot of irrigation, you could really raise your crop output. But in those parts of the world, you still have very manual, small farm holdings. And there really hasn't been another revolution. The mechanization hasn't happened and this next generation technology hasn't come there. So you now have this sort of world where U.S. and Latin American farms are taking all this new precision agriculture. You have 
seed throwing, you have plantation, you have knowledge about when you need to water plants available at the fingertips of farmers in these markets. And then you've got this like massive gulf in another universe where things are still very basic. It's manual labor. There may be like bullock-drawn carts that are kind of harvesting fields. And there is where there's a massive opportunity to take all this data, take all this information, get it on mobile phones because people don't have fancy computers in, in emerging markets and really revolutionize agriculture and create much more food and calories for the world. Okay, so you said investing in the food system provides opportunities for investors to further ESG goals and have a measurable impact. So maybe can you talk about the ESG aspect of this? Sure. So again, it's a great analogy to to energy 10 years ago, where, where the first sort of reaction to energy was, we're going to stay away from the oil and gas sector, and we're just going to focus on solar and renewables and hydroelectrics. And and then it became clear that solar and wind and, and hydropower on its own wasn't going to meet our need for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And so the carbon transition required investors not to just separate and disengage from all, all the oil and gas producers, but but find what, what I, I like to call kind of the not the not the greenest of the green only, but stay away from the brownest of the brown and kind of find the in-between khaki renewable and fuel providers, including Shell and BP and the big companies, to encourage them to make the transition. And the opportunity for the ESG investor is not to move away from beef, not to move away from livestock cultivation, but recognize that the livelihoods of billions of people around the world and the calorie needs of a rising Asia that does need its middle class to be fed requires that for a while we will need all these forms of production to be maximized, but find better ways of doing that, find greener ways of doing that. So engage rather than disengage, but really find, okay, if they're nitrogen-based fertilizers, which are not particularly good for the environment, what's the next best option? If somebody is using up too much water for their farmland because they don't have modern technology, how do we get modern technology there? And that requires ESG to engage in all these sectors, not stay away. Another great example is, is packaging. Like, you still need packaging. People in developing countries and in emerging frontier markets want their food to be as safe as we have in the U.S., and to do that, you need various kinds of safe, modern packaging. How do you invest in that in greener packaging, less packaging, not withdraw from the sector? So we think there's a huge role for the ESG sector. And I would say an even bigger data gap than exists in the energy world. There's very little data on what's good, what's bad. We're all confused as consumers. Investors are equally confused because the data doesn't exist. And we really need to ask all the food companies to start providing the same data that the energy sector is now providing so that people can make informed decisions and investors can make informed decisions on ESG goals. I want to get back to that notion of geopolitics as well. And obviously, from time to time, food security can be a major geopolitical issue. You know, I'm thinking of the Arab Spring a decade ago, even just more recently with the war in Ukraine. Ukraine, obviously, a major grain producer, and there were all sorts of questions about supplies from Ukraine. Do you see this sort of geopolitical deglobalization that's happening in a lot of industries? Is, is that going to hit the food, the global food industry as well? Or is this sort of hunger for meat and protein enough to, to allow the world to kind of stick closer together when it comes to food, if not semiconductors and other industries? You know, How do you see it going as far as 
geopolitics and food? Is it is it going to be a local market more so, or is there potential for sort of multinational dominance uh, from some multinational corporations? So maybe a good chance to step back, and I'd say we we found four reasons why investors should care about this food system, yeah. uh, even if they're not foodies. And the first one is if they care about ESG, and many, many, many do. Yeah. There's a real connection between climate change and the food system, and there are ways to to help make it a better food system. the The second factor was simply the incredible investment opportunities in the food sector, and we can talk about a few of them. That investors regardless of their motivations, may want to capture the risk-return opportunities that are available to them there. The third, which we haven't talked about yet, is just how inextricably linked food prices and inflation have become, and therefore food supply and food demand, what it means for food prices, and therefore what it means for inflation and all the headlines and all the monetary policy decisions as we try and bring back inflation in Europe, in the U.S., in many countries around the world. And you've got to figure out the food equation piece of that. And the fourth is the one you mentioned, Mike, which is if you want to understand geopolitics, both within a country and between countries, you've got to understand food because it's such a sort of primal, important necessity that everybody wants. And across borders, it's driven things. I think it's come to light for two reasons. One, COVID, and everybody recognized that their food supply chains were too scattered and too far away. And since COVID, I think food security has become national security. And you've seen, for example, in, in, in Congress, lots of discussions around, for example, should Chinese companies own U.S. agricultural land? And that same debate is being echoed around Latin America and Africa and Asia and other parts where they're Chinese owners of the land system. And then you're seeing it also playing out domestically. You see it in Peru, you see it in India, you see it in France, where farmers are a very important lobby. And when you hit farm subsidies, which are massive in some of these countries, you really get a massive political reaction. So it's a big domestic stabilizing or destabilizing food. Potatoes go up 20% in India. You could have a new government at your hands. So it really makes a difference. And then geopolitically, I think between COVID and Ukraine, there's been a recognition that we need to figure out where these supply chains are because we've got to get food security for our own population. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What is it about the food space as an investment topic? Is it that there are these opportunities there, or is it that it's a space that not very many investors have been thinking about, hence you can maybe find some hidden companies or investment opportunities? It's probably a little bit of both, Vildana. I think there are definitely opportunities. And I think compared to certain other sectors, they're probably under-recognized and underappreciated, which is one of the reasons PGM wrote this report. 
And we have the unique ability because we have uh, a big real estate team, private credit. We do fundamental equity. We do bonds. So we kind of approach the topic from four or five different angles saying, where's the opportunity? So, for example, one opportunity is cold storage. Everybody thinks of real estate, and the first thing that comes to mind is offices, and nobody's going to offices any longer in the U.S. and Europe, and there's a crisis in the office sector, and, and I think there are pressures there. But cold storage and the logistics and distribution that you need around cold storage is a very significant opportunity with very high growth rates in the real estate sector. That entire ecosystem of, of real assets and then the, the storage for them is a big opportunity. And it's really linked to the fact that 40% of food around the world is just wasted. In the US, in Europe, it's wasted at the end, the end consumers. All of us are probably not as efficient with food as we should be. And in emerging and frontier markets, it's all happening in production. Getting it from the farm to the retail storefront is where you lose all the food. And cold storage can absolutely be critical in changing that. So we see that as very much as a, as a global opportunity. On the other end of the spectrum, for debt holders, for, for bonds, there's some really safe spaces. The consumption of energy drinks and, and, and alcohol in, in cans is going up. You've seen all those applesauce and, and baby food things and those pouches that are openable and sealable. So plastic manufacturers of these fairly specialized food equipments that you really can't get other people to make very quickly are a very safe place to be. Another good example of a safe place to be where there's lots of long-term opportunity is all the franchise holders in developing countries, the Pepsi-Cola bottlers, the people who are making well-recognized foods in big emerging markets. Everybody's gearing towards them. They don't want to take a risk with smaller, less-known brands. And then we started this discussion with meat, and it's probably worth mentioning it again. Again, as a debt holder, you're not going to get like equity-like returns. Don't look for cryptocurrency-type returns, which, by the way, don't exist in cryptocurrency. Don't look for them here. <laughs> but in meat production, and the more humane, the more ESG-friendly end of meat production, there's definitely another opportunity because we've seen with plant-based meats, if somebody talked about Impossible Burger, we've seen with cultivated meats at the beginning of this discussion, they're either not going to succeed based on demand and appetite, or they're going to be a long way away. And therefore, these core opportunities in, in those sectors exist. Yeah, there was so much hype about plant-based meat for a while there, Impossible Burgers. I like them. Do you? Yeah. I think you're in the minority, though. I don't think they're really, it's really catching on. It seemed like for a while everyone was willing to try it. Mm -hmm. You know, they had the, the Whopper had an Impossible Whopper. Mm -hmm. What do you suppose happened there, uh, Time, or is it, are they not quite there yet where where regular meat eaters will swap in an impossible burger. What, what is sort of the, the headwind to plant-based meat that sort of didn't allow it to live up to the hype? I'd agree. It, lived, it did not live up to the hype. There was all the headline, there were all the headlines around Burger King and McDonald's and everybody introducing plant-based meats on their menu. And I think some of them have silently retired that offering, but in any case, the market is still a minuscule portion of the meat market. It hasn't taken off, and, and the stock prices of those companies have not lived up to the hopes that some people had pinned on them. And I think it comes down to something very simple, which is people like the taste and the flavor and the consistency of actual products. Right. And, and plant-based meat doesn't quite do it. And, and frankly, there might be more opportunity in cultivated meat 
again, not an investment opportunity now in the in the long term there. And I'll tell you about another thing that I think got a little overhyped, which is vertical farming. This is farming that doesn't happen in a big field in Kansas, but is happening in an urban center. Could be outside New York City, could be outside Jakarta in Indonesia. Imagine an urban center. And you're farming in a building where all the kind of factors of production, all the things that create the end and farm produce is being provided by mechanically or digitally. So you've got lighting and water that's fed to a vertical farm that's grown in a small space in a peri-urban or urban location. And there was lots of hope that this would change both food shortages and create a new way of growing that was more sustainable. And and the honest truth is, while you know I think it's still a worthy social endeavor, it simply means that when the most expensive factor of production in farming, which is light, doesn't come for free, as it does on big farms or small farms around the world, but has to be created by using up energy, it's no longer cost efficient to create it that way, and therefore impossibly hard to scale it. And that makes uh, vertical farming not a great investment opportunity at scale for investors. Of course, if they're only looking for ESG goals, it might be. But from a risk-return perspective, like plant-based meat, it hasn't quite lived up to the hype. I think I read a story they were trying to grow strawberries this way in Newark, I think. Oh, or yeah, somewhere in New that's Jersey. Right. Yeah. I remember about But they that. were super expensive. Right. They were really expensive. Some of the stuff I've had a lot, and we have some very good vertical farms in Newark because PGM is headquartered there in, in New Jersey. Some of the produce is really, really good and fresh. And it gets to consumers much quicker than, you know, your Whole Foods might if it's coming from, you know, 3,000 miles away. But simply the, the cost per unit isn't, isn't there yet. Yeah, yeah. You threw out a number there, and I remember reading this in, in your report that uh, is kind of mind-boggling to me. And that is 40% of food is wasted at some point in the supply chain between production and, and getting to your refrigerator, I suppose. To me, if you believe in efficient markets, that seems like, wow, there seems to be an opportunity just in reclaiming that lost food. Am I crazy to think that? Is there any sort of effort to say, hey, wait a minute, where's all this food going? How do we reduce that 40% or how do we capitalize on that? There are. The one I feel has most promise is what's happening in, in countries, mainly emerging markets, frontier markets, where a lot of food is grown where the food is lost and that wastage happens in trying to get it to you, the end consumer. And somewhere in that chain, either at the farm or in the storage at the farm or in the road transportation to get it to the city, to move it from the warehouse in the city to the end retail consumer, a lot of food gets wasted in the process. And a lot of work is happening, whether it's the World Bank and the development institutions or venture capitalists, but the big food companies are really trying to cut down that waste. And, and that's about the kinds of seeds you use. It's about cold storage and the opportunities in cold storage. It's quicker transportation, better retail packaging. And I think there is hope for all of us that we'll cut food wastage there. And 800 million people who are, don't have enough food to eat as they need every day. So right. there's a big opportunity, not just for investors, but probably also to create a, create a better planet we can be proud of if you attack that. Absolutely. The yeah. second piece is in the US, in, in our market, in Europe, in, in, in developed markets, where most of the food is wasted at the restaurants or in the end household. And that, I think, Mike, is much harder to change. That's changing end consumer behaviors. 
you are seeing an attempt to take food waste and turn it into processed food. And you are seeing companies with names like Misfit or Imperfect in it who are trying to take all the food that is not considered, the tomato is not well-shaped enough for somebody to buy it and actually package that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there is some opportunity there. But I think changing consumer behaviors is much harder than in introducing cold storage and improving the transportation chains in emerging markets to, to counter food waste. I'm doing my share. This is the dad in me speaking, Vildan. If, if my Do kid, you eat the ugly tomatoes it, too? Well, no, if my kids leave 40% of their dinner You'll on the it? table, I'll, I, I always end up eating it. Yeah, I finish all my And then I, I had three kids. You do the math. I end up eating That's a 120% lot. of yes. what I probably should have. Yeah, for sure. But you mentioned emerging markets, and I am wondering, and this is a big question, but like, what are the implications for emerging countries? Or which ones are you thinking about? I, I think some of them are really around the fact that emerging market consumers want uh, fresher food and safer food. And increasingly, people, both men and women in emerging market households are not working at the home. They're working in urban centers. Women are increasingly part of the workforce. So they're not able to cook food from scratch. So ready-to-made food, not necessarily the ghost kitchens that we talk about in the U.S., which is just, just for delivery, but definitely prepackaged, safe, things that they know that, that their kids can eat, ugly or beautiful tomatoes that they can <laughs> eat and, and be healthy with has become a much bigger part of the food industry there. There are absolutely investment opportunities uh, in, in that area. I think the second one is the supply chains and making available to people the diets that now crave, which includes, for better or for worse, you know, more sugar, more dairy products, and more meat. And how do we get to the rising middle class in Asia access to these foods? And how do you create a food system, which at the moment is not fit for purpose, that will harm the environment, that doesn't create enough calories, that doesn't get it to the right people? How do we kind of shape the supply chains in ways that these people get the calories they need while still fighting the obesity epidemic, while we do all the nutritional education and so on? So the big opportunities are actually for international growers of foods that are increasingly being demanded by rising middle classes in Asia, I'm sure in the next 20 years in Africa, as well as kind of the young population there rises, and then really an opportunity in convenience and branded packaging of foods, which at the moment are informal, unpackaged, and and increasingly people in emerging markets are a little shy about going there. And I assume when you're talking about a rising affluence in, in emerging some emerging markets, does your focus tend to be more on food at home or is there a, a restaurant segment there that is also going to increase in, in demand in, in those economies? We haven't seen a big opportunity in the, in the restaurant sector as investors. It's very fragmented. Margins are yeah. low. It's a tough business is, to be yeah. in. Of course, you've seen some venture capital in ghost kitchens and so on, but we haven't seen that identified as an investment opportunity. I, I should say, as we look at the investment universe at at, at our company, at PGM, we only look at opportunities we would consider in one of our portfolios or already investing it in one of our portfolios. Maybe the, the bigger opportunity we see, which again is, I think, underinvested and in, even by institutional investors, by pension plans and so on, and certainly I think individual investors, and we need to find better ways for them to access it, but that's agricultural debt and equity farmland investing, both in the equity side and debt side. And I know, I know both of you have talked about that in the past. But that is definitely an area which is a good inflation hedge, which everybody's thinking about now. It's pretty uncorrelated with stock markets and bond markets. 
particularly if you're in the permanent end of the row crops rather than the ones that that are not uh you can find some parts of the world california is a good example mexico's another one parts of australia are a third where you can really find investment opportunities and also support sustainable farmland techniques as well and and we still see that as a pretty small percentage of people's allocations i don't think it's ever going to be 10% but everybody should probably think about should there be 1 2 3% in farmland Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at Select Business Merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com/businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You read my mind because I was interested in if somebody calls you and says I'm interested in in farmland as an investment, what you would tell them or where you would tell them to look. So so we are one of the big investors in in farmland but not not even talking our own book. It's it's very clear over 30 40 50 years through multiple market cycles that that farmland has shown good inflation characteristics. And B what a lot of institutional investors are trying to do is not just trying to earn that extra point of return, they're trying to diversify their portfolio and create more stability for their end beneficiaries, the people they need to they pay out. And farmland has worked really well. as a way of of diversifying your holdings. So our key questions is do you want to be on the debt side which is more yield and it's not just the commodity returns which are quite can be quite volatile but actually just the farmland ownership or do you want to be on the equity side? But both are pretty safe. We mainly invest in developed markets. We don't take the risk of owning emerging markets farmland. So we don't have investments say in in China and so on. where the regulatory and ownership risks become much higher than than say the US or Australia. I wanted to go back to that notion that you were talking about cold storage and that to me makes a lot of sense as an avenue of growth especially in in emerging markets and whatnot. But as a real estate play just how how do the particulars of that work? Are there cold storage REITs that I that I'm unfamiliar with or is it is it you buy a a warehouse and rent it out to what are the sort of details of how that works in as an investment. So the way our investors invest in it is still in a more diversified real estate investment. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked on the on the cold storage REITs but probably somebody should google that There's and there might be opportunities, there, right? you know. Yeah. Isn't not, there REITs for everything? Yeah, yeah. If not, we can start. With- <laughs> it might be it might be another business opportunity yeah. spawned by spawn spawned here. But within those portfolios absolutely there are buildings and warehouses. that are designed with all the cooling facilities and refrigeration that's needed for modern produce to be at the optimal temperature to be in good condition when it gets to the end houses and that's a very specialized kind of facility yeah and we very much look to those in terms of investment opportunities there's a good parallel with biotech right to actually house a biotech lab there's actually a big opportunity in real estate because you need very specialized buildings to put all the machinery and equipment and the temperatures you need for that as well. 
So these kind of specialized places is where a lot of the real estate opportunity is. I might put it in the broader opportunity because online shopping is growing, right? And maybe pre-COVID, we all bought, I don't know, staplers online. But now more and more people were willing to buy even their, their, their tomatoes and their apples and their, and their chicken online. And the logistics required for that and the distribution facilities and warehousing is massive. Right. So that's a bigger real estate opportunity as well linked to this food system. All right. Timer, fascinating stuff on the global food supply chain. But before we let you go, I'd love to just get your sense of the overall markets right now. You know, we saw this tremendous rally in U.S. equities, especially that growth and and tech side. Interest rates are high. What's the opportunity set look like to you from sort of a, a macro level? Are you are you risk on still after that first half? Are you a little more cautious? How are you thinking about the the opportunity set in the market right now? Over the short term, we are definitely thinking the next six months is more risk off than a risk on environment. We feel the markets in generally, particularly equity markets, are probably undervaluing the amount of risk to the global economy that exists between geopolitical conflicts, between how does the Fed and other central banks kind of manage this very fine line between inflation and recession risk. So we and many of our sophisticated investors are still in risk-off mode. Having said that, I think somewhere in the next 18 months, and I know that's a broad period, it will be one of the best investment opportunities in our lives as markets correct, but we don't think we are there. Second, I'd say we remain very humble. We think this is a very different, difficult macroeconomic environment to navigate, and we are quite scenario-based in our thinking. We haven't put all our bets on one scenario, but you've got to look at what are the range of outcomes that can happen between a soft landing and a deeper recession. And we planned our portfolio to kind of manage across multiples of those, those different uh, settings at this point. And third, we think that returns and rates don't come down as quickly as markets assume. Once central banks set the rate at a certain level, they wait, they pause, they see before they move again. And markets have sort of assumed that we're at the top of the hill and we're immediately marching down again. And I think in reality, we'll stay at a steady state, whether it's 25 or 50 basis points from where we are now, who knows. But we're going to stay at that level for a little longer. And the signals for a recession will have to be deeper than they are now before central banks act. And markets and investors are under investing against that idea. Well, that's Timer Hyatt. He's the Chief Operating Officer at PGM. Such a uh, pleasure to hear all your thoughts. He th- talks about more than food, it turns out. Yeah. More this was going super on. fun. <laughs> I like this conversation. That was, no, I love the food topic, as, as we do in farming. It's really interesting. It's, it's our, Voldan and I are both uh, secretly wish to have run a farm. I yeah. Think, Farmers someday. to be one day. <laughs> in New Jersey. But can't let you go just yet, Timer. We do have a sure. tradition here, the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Have you seen anything crazy in markets recently? My, my crazy story is maybe not about markets now, but it's about what markets don't look at, but ultimately will and should. And we had a colleague who just took a flight from Singapore to London on British Airways. This was in the, in the headlines in the British newspapers, hit massive turbulence. Five people on the plane were injured. Oh, wow. And the University of Reading in England has done research that between 1970 and 2022, there's been a 55% increase in severe turbulence on uh, Atlantic flights. And it's because the jet streams, 
because of climate change are 15% more shear happens in the wind patterns. Wow. And that a raises the cost of plane maintenance. It actually means in the future because they expect a 3 to 6 times fold increase over the next 30 years in the amount of turbulence that pilots will have to take new routes that might be more expensive. And to me it's just a classic example of the fact that much as I love markets and much as markets capture many things there are externalities things one step ahead of markets such as these weird non-linear tail risks that happen from climate change that ultimately will come into market pricing and savvy investors are ones who sort of figure out what's going Get to happen ahead of next that. yeah wow. and turbulence and all its second order impacts and probably none of us will be able to have a glass of champagne if we ever get into business class without bouncing up and down is one of them. That's wild. Yeah. It, because the, the Gulf Stream's actually gotten stronger, just more turbulent, or is it, it's shifting too, right? Isn't it shifting across the Atlantic a little bit? Right. The temperature difference between the poles and the continents has gone down as the poles heat up. And therefore, the jet streams that were very focused and targeted and you knew exactly how they went have gotten more erratic. Less predictable and, and you don't know. Wow. And so you you would typically plan your route to sort of minimize it. And I guess now you can't do that. That's now, now you can't. This is known as sort of clean air turbulence where you don't expect it when it hits. It always happens, but it's becoming much worse as a problem. Wow. I'm so scared of this. That is, that's, it is scary. That is, I, but you're right, though. Something to get ahead of as, a, as an investor when you think about this stuff. All right. Mine has to do with pricing in the influencer economy. It's a story courtesy of the New York Post. Have you ever heard of someone named Olivia Dunn, Vildana? No. Never. No. Me neither. Timer, an never influencer? She is an influencer. She is a gymnast at LSU, Louisiana State University. If you follow college athletics, there's this thing called the NIL now. The valuation on hers is the second highest among all college athletes, second only to LeBron James' son, Bronny James. So here's where it gets interesting. She was on, uh, this is a story New York Post wrote up about a podcast appearance she did, the Full Send podcast. She revealed the highest price she's ever received, the highest payday for a single post. Now, mind you, she has on Instagram 4.2 million followers on Instagram and 7.6 on TikTok. They didn't say which one it was on. Maybe it was on both. I don't know, but... The highest fee she's ever received for a single post from a college student who just happens to be on the LSU gymnastics team. $196,000. $196,000? That's your guess? Yeah. Timer, what do you think? Highest price for a single post from an, a gymnast influencer? 330000 Closer, five hundred grand. Wow, five hundred grand for a single post. Oh, we should become influencers. Yeah, and I'm very, I, I can't influence anyone. Right? Finfluencers. Fin- <laughs> Fake influencers. I post my uh, food pictures on Instagram, and I have sixty nine followers. I'm very jealous <laughs> of my follow account. What's the highest you've ever received? Twenty seven likes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good ratio out of sixty seven followers. Third, or yeah. Many, yeah. So you're a foodie. What cook at home yourself or? I, I cook at home. We spend half the time in the Hudson Valley. I have a grill there and then uh, in our tiny city apartment, kind of less grilling because of condo rules, but, right, uh, yeah. but I cook a bunch. What's your best dish? My best dish is probably a braised uh, leg of lamb 
with tomatoes and onions and shallots and all that. Ugly oh. tomatoes. I'm, sw- I'm swooning. It melts in your mouth. You, it's spoonable. It's very, very good. Is guilty Valdana, if they ever make lab-grown lamb, you've got to try it. As no, guilty as you. I feel for eating them, it's ooh, so good. No, wow. I need to go out immediately and eat something right now. Mm-hmm. This was a very hunger-inducing episode of What Goes <laughs> Up. But Timer Hyatt, Chief Operating Officer of PGM. Really a pleasure to catch up with you and hear about this report uh, that you guys have out on uh, Food for Thought, I believe it's called. It's the name of it. Aptly named about the global uh, supply chain in food, how it's changing, and what the opportunities are. Really fascinating stuff. Thank you for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, great conversation. Thank you. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can find us on Twitter. Follow me, at Vildana Hyrick. Mike Regan is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong, and our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.